0: Meta Modern Era by Srimataji Nirmaladevi. Read by Sukhanil. Chapter 1 Modernism and Rationality. In the Puranas, the modern times we are now living in are called Kali Yuga, the age of confusion and conflict. Yugas are periods of time, thousands of years long, that recur in a cyclic or spiral progression. Dwapri-yuga is the second age when people begin to lose some of the great qualities they had in Satya-yuga, the first or golden age. Kali-yuga, modern times, marks the lowest point of moral and spiritual consciousness in each cycle. Kali-yuga is followed by Krita yuga the age of transformation or actualization of spiritual experience, which leads finally to Satya-yuga the age of truth or reality, in which the golden age returns, and all man's faculties of spirituality begin to manifest themselves in their full glory once again. Thus, according to the Puranas, humanity has great hope of enjoying Satya Yuga, which will give peace, harmony, and divine love. If we tally the description of Kali Yuga in the Puranas with very obvious observations of the present state of our society, it seems to me that the worst period of Kali Yuga started during the first quarter of the twentieth century. It is almost unbelievable how culture and thought have completely changed in such a short time, particularly in the West. In Kali Yuga, All traditional values are more and more undermined and destroyed, and thus there is great moral confusion. There is also a restless seeking for new forms and new kinds of order. According to the Puranas, when the lowest point is reached, the people will have lost contact with their inner sense of Dharma, the innate sense of righteousness which is sustained. There will be confusion about right and wrong. Children will no longer respect their parents men will think and act like women, and women will become like men. The lowest grades of human beings will take over positions of power and authority, and the higher spiritual type of human beings will be neglected and despised. However, in 1970, marking the very first stirring of a new Satya Yuga, the transitional age called Kriti Yuga started manifesting itself. Kriti Yuga is a unique period of spiritual ascent, as the all-pervading divine power called the Paramchaitanya in Sanskrit has become active at the level of ordinary human existence. It is predicted that this divine activity will bring about the long-awaited Satya-yuga, the era of growth and spiritual ascent. All the signs show that the era of truth is now advancing, and we can see it very clearly, for example, in how quite ordinary people are becoming aware of absolute truth and reality through Sahaja Yoga. Sahaja Yoga is the spontaneous union of the individual consciousness with the all-pervading divine power through the awakening of the residual power of Kundalini, which lies dormant within all human beings in the triangular bone at the base of the spine, called the sacrum, the sacred bone. Krita Yuga has another characteristic, by which when this Yuga is manifested, the falsehood of all outside religions, religions that do not follow the teachings of the Incarnation who founded them, and all people in power who are unpatriotic and dishonest, will be automatically exposed. All false prophets and cult leaders will be exposed, and all organizations that perpetuate falsehood and hatred in the name of God, will also be exposed, because in Kriti yuga the truth is spontaneously brought out. All corrupt entrepreneurs and false teachers will also be exposed. A second characteristic of Krita-yuga is that whenever there is a falling away from Dharma, the inner divine laws of righteousness, which are innate and regulate both human existence and the whole worldly structure, as well as the manifestation of the cosmos, will arise as a result with a corresponding compensatory effect. This is called the law of polarity, or in Sanskrit, karma phalam, the fruits of action, which means in practical terms that whatever you have done, you will get the fruits of those actions. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. So in this yuga, all persons will get their karma phalam. If they have led their lives in accordance with the universal and eternal laws of being, Dharma, they will enjoy an existence which is harmonious and fulfilling. But, on the other hand, whatever wrongs they have done, that is, whenever they have fallen out of the central path of Dharma, either individually or collectively, they will have to pay for that in this lifetime. In Kriti yuga there may be much to suffer, This is very unfortunate, but it is simply the effect of our own actions which we have to face. Of course, suffering can be avoided if people achieve their ascent into what, in yoga, we call the state of spirit or union with the divine power. In Krita-yoga, this manifestation of exposure and punishment through the law of polarity will take place as long as we do not accept the path of spirituality— which is the only true and satisfying path for human beings. The suffering that befalls people both collectively and individually will be nothing but their own karma-phalam, the result of their own choices. However, despite this aspect, Krita-yuga is also a very blissful era for those who are genuinely earnest seekers of truth. In Krita-yuga, there are unique opportunities for self-transformation, and with their ascent these seekers will achieve a very high state of spirituality. But in this age of Krita-yuga, such is the all-pervading power of divine compassion and love, the Chaitanya, that those who have made mistakes and are consequently suffering are also redeemed of their sufferings by the activity of this all-pervading divine power. Furthermore, It is said in the Puranas that the residual power, that innate energy which is always pushing us to seek something higher and thus gives human beings their ascent, the Kundalini, will be awakened and will grant self-realization, or knowledge of the highest self, to the seekers. This power will also grant them physical, emotional, and spiritual bliss. And all the problems which come from our inner being from the energy centers of the subtle instrument, will be solved through the spontaneous cleansing and harmonizing activity of the Kundalini. In this way, all individual human problems, as well as those collective or social problems that have been created by human beings in this world, will be solved. But it is said that this state is meant only for people who through their ascent have achieved the state of selfhood the truths of these ancient prophecies can now be vividly seen. The Indian sage who may be called the pioneer in this field was the first great astrologer, Brigumuni. Muni. In his book, Nadi Granth, he made clear predictions about these modern times. He also specifically predicted how the kundalini would be awakened spontaneously through Sahaja Yoga, that is, spontaneous union with the divine, and become the means of both individual and collective transformation on a mass scale through the teachings and incarnation of a great yogi. This yogi would be an unparalleled master of the kundalini, and would teach all the people the ancient secrets of self-transformation. These are the times described in the Holy Bible as the Last Judgment, and in the Quran as Kiyama, the resurrection time. Astrologically, it is also called the Age of Aquarius, the time of rebirth and great spiritual development on the earth. Of course, this is also the age of science and technology, in which human beings have progressed beyond the stage of blind faith. And in this great happening of the Last Judgment and the resurrection time, one need not, and should not, believe blindly in whatever is said about ascent or salvation, but should treat it like a hypothesis and observe the facts with an open mind, like a scientist. Of course, if a hypothesis is proved, then any honest, scientifically-minded modern person has to accept it. The pure knowledge of the divine, manifesting itself directly through self-realization, will progressively lead to the creation of a new race, For the new age. This knowledge is not then for very few privileged individuals as it was in the past, but for the benevolence of the whole world. In this way, the last breakthrough of our evolution will be achieved en masse. The entire human race can be renewed and transformed. Dharma, righteousness, will once again be universally respected, and human beings will live in peace, harmoniously with themselves, with nature, and with each other. The manifestation of Krita-yuga may not yet be apparent to the majority of human beings, since Kali-yuga is still manifesting itself throughout the whole world, but it seems more so in the West and in a much deeper manner. However, in India, and in many other so-called developing countries where dharma is still respected, kaliyuga has produced a style of life which is no longer so traditional and dharmic, especially in the cities. The Western modern culture is dangerously attacking the culture of the East and converting young people to a very cheap, frivolous, superficial, and self-promoting way of life. In the prediction of Nadi Grand. Even small details are clearly described. People will start eating their food from steel plates rather than those made of traditional materials, and children will start answering back to their parents. However, India has the advantage that faith in the divine is not as strongly challenged as in the West, where many take to destructive practices. They are more prone to vulgar and immoral practices. In India... This faith, this innate respect for the existence of divine laws and universal harmony in the cosmos, existed in many people. In the unspoiled state of innocent childhood, practically every human being has a natural and direct feeling for the existence of God Almighty. But, as time passes, this faith may be deflected and people start believing in other powers, political, economic, or social. Pure faith in the benevolence of the divine can also degenerate into destructive forms of religion like orthodoxy, fundamentalism, sectarianism, fanaticism, false gurus, black magic and witchcraft. As time progresses, persons may, for many reasons, even cease to have faith in anything at all, even in themselves. This is largely the case in the West today— and it is only in countries like India that we may find that pure faith in the divine is still quite intact in the lives of the people, mainly in the villages. It may, of course, be true that even in India, the effect of Kali Yuga has penetrated up to a point, but it has not yet crossed that limit of innate righteousness, of faith in God, so that what Western people would call the Antichrist style of life is not accepted in the day-to-day behaviour of the ordinary people, as it is in the West. Of course, not all Indians have preserved their innate sense of spiritual wealth, and many have taken to the Western style of life in the cities, even though they may have been born in India and imbibed some of its respect for traditional values and ancient wisdom. It is ironic but what is so attractive about the West to certain Indian minds is its apparent affluence. India was, of course, herself once fabulously rich, but became a poor country as a result of foreign domination, and even after independence has continued to be poor. The British left many legacies, some good, and unfortunately many bad, but apart from the so-called intelligentsia that is westernised, the ordinary people of India never recognised them. However, With the departure of the British after three hundred years of a divide-and-rule policy, the country was partitioned on the basis of religion, and this created an atmosphere of anger and hatred in some areas, where fundamentalism and violence could easily take root. But despite all these setbacks, Indian society did not accept much change in the traditional way of life in the country. The traditional values continued to be respected, and faith in the divine and, in the innate righteousness, continue to be very much accepted in post-independence India, as in the past. However, since independence there have been many hypocritical and unpatriotic people who have taken advantage of the innocence and the simple citizens of India. They appear mostly in the bureaucratic, political, and economic spheres. The lives of such people do not reflect in any way the general lifestyle of most Indians, which remains firmly rooted in traditional wisdom. One might well find that many of India's problems arise from the actions of these impostors who are in charge of the country's welfare. Fortunately, India has had very few intellectuals like Sigmund Freud or the Marquis de Sade who could produce yards of mental projections to instigate change for the sake of change, and defend the destruction of traditional values and the disintegration of society as they have in the West. On the contrary, India has produced many great men and women of noble ideals who have been upholders of truth and of traditional wisdom. India also, luckily, did not face any major wars, and the history of India has been made spiritually rich by saints, seers, great kings and genuine social reformers, who are still deeply respected and venerated by the ordinary people. They were all men and women of great learning, of great character, and of great spiritual standing. For example, Mahatma Gandhi, who was himself a realized soul, created a whole generation of very great patriots. Like Gandhi, they believed in one universal religion, which encompasses all the principles of the great religions of the world. After self-realization, it is easy to perceive the truth that all these religions were born on the same tree of spirituality, but that those in charge of each religion plucked the flowers from the living source and are now fighting each other with the dead flowers of merely partial truths. Unfortunately, Most of the patriots of Gandhi's generation lived only for a short time and could not take their rightful place in the political life of India. However, since most religions in India are not organized, everyone is free to follow whatever faith he chooses. Even Hindu fundamentalism is more nationalism than fundamentalism, and the traditional faith in one universal religion is still very strong among the people. In this way, the values of traditional society have remained basically intact. India's main problem has been that of poverty and industrial and economic underdevelopment after three hundred years of British rule. It is not like England, where the Church of England is the only real authority as far as religion is concerned. France, said to be the eldest daughter of the Catholic Church, is regarded as a secular state. Yet, despite all the illegal activities and horrendous crimes of the Catholic Church that are being exposed everywhere in the world, France has an organisation called ADFI, the Union of Associations for the Defence of the Family and Individual, which can influence the justice of most of the countries in Europe. Unlike Europe, there is no official religion in India, which could call any other faith a cult or sect, or branded as undesirable without finding the truth. People are allowed to follow any religion or ideology they choose. But the negative side of this open-mindedness and religious tolerance is that people can follow any nonsensical paths they like, or take any kind of person as their guru. Luckily, all these false gurus are very greedy, money-oriented people who get attracted to the West, That is an advantage of being a poor country. But in countries where there is an official state religion, the freedom of human choice is completely restricted, and people have no choice to think about the insights of other paths that might help them in their ascent, or of gaining anything more than the official religion can deliver. Consequently, they either stick to their blind faith or fall into some false path, cult or sect. The orthodox religions have tried to combat the freedom of the early agnostic tradition, which did not care at all for official dogmas and creeds, but took to truth wherever it found it, and aimed only at direct knowledge of divine reality. The gerund gna in Sanskrit means to know. There are other words like bodha or vidha. They all mean to know the truth on one's own central nervous system. From Buddha comes the word Buddha, the enlightened one, and from Vida comes the word Vedas, which are the ancient books of divine knowledge. Amidst all the double standards and moral impoverishments in the West, we can see the law of polarity at work. The wealth that was earned so easily by the plundering of natural resources, and the ruthless looting and exploitation of the captive markets of the colonies by the colonial powers was assimilated into Western countries and resulted in tremendous changes in the West. Great material prosperity, but also a gradual loosening of the ties of traditional culture that enable human beings to know easily the eternal values of Dharma. These profound changes have seriously undermined traditional culture in the West, and have even left their mark on the cities of many underdeveloped countries. This is because a very subtle undercurrent of materialism brought forth the gross Western culture of today. As a result of the two world wars, and the conflicts of the Cold War period, there have been terrible attacks on the values that traditionally sustained the people. As we know from very precise historical studies, these have been specifically inflicted by the soldiers and sailors who visited or stayed in those countries. For instance, the American forces who stayed in Thailand during the Vietnam War have been largely responsible for undermining and destroying the traditional culture there, and replacing it with the anti-culture of prostitution, drug trafficking, and organised crime. It is also possible that the two great wars might have been responsible for the final shattering of the old value systems in the Western world. America was invaded by Europeans destroying the peaceful culture of the natives. It is impossible to meet any native in a high position in society in North America. In South American states like Argentina, there are several German war criminals very comfortably settled down. They say the Falklands War was planned by them. I asked them, How did you reach here, all the way from Europe? And they told me very boastfully, it was the grace of God which used the Catholic Church as an instrument. There are, of course, many other subtle causes of these new juxtaposed or parallel cultures that evolved in the West, which I shall discuss later. In this book, we are concerned about dealing with the profound changes in culture and thought in Western countries and modern times. The concern is heartfelt. It is very important to know why these changes have been so evident and effective in the West in particular. In the West, people pride themselves on being the defenders of democratic rights and the champions of freedom. But if the Western world really cares for the benevolence of the whole world, it will have to turn to introspection. Due to their blessings of material prosperity and technological advancement, which have gone out of balance, it is Western people who will have to take the responsibility for the creation of a new age and the transformation of human beings. However, if the countries of the West try to solve their problems by indulging in a fascist type of reorganization and limit their concern only to their stagnated own kind in developed countries, then they will have completely failed in their duty to face up to their moral responsibility, and one cannot say where they will finish up in destroying themselves from within materialism without any control cannot establish peace from within or without in my opinion every westerner has as a matter of urgency to understand the vital role he has to play in this great age of transformation and of the last judgment the western mind has to realize the enormous responsibility which has been placed upon the west and the western people need to urgently find out how to achieve that balance not in terms of money but in the vision of their responsibility this is very much required for the ascent of the whole of humanity otherwise on whom will the blame of destroying the innate human culture by the dynamism of modernism lie the advanced Or the underdeveloped. In these modern times, in the evolutionary process, we have reached the state of human awareness. This human awareness can work through its thinking, rationality, or conditioning. Many modern poets have described thinking, rationality, and conditioning as the walls of freedom of the self. But what if one can rise to a higher dimension of awareness? Why not open our hearts and minds to the unique discovery that has been revealed for this vital ascent? The kingdom of God is at hand. This is not a phrase out of a sermon or a lecture, but it is the actualization of the experience of the highest truth which is absolute, now manifesting itself in ordinary people at this present moment. The truth which can be actualized after self-realization, is that you are not this body, this mind, this conditioning from the past, this ego, these emotions, but that you are the pure spirit. Another aspect to this highest truth is that there is an all-pervading power of divine love which permeates every aspect of whatever is created. This divine power does all the living work in this entire creation. We take everything for granted. We see beautiful flowers coming out of little seeds. We see big fruit trees growing from tiny seedlings. But, however much scientists may dissect and analyze the living process, none of them can say how these miracles have taken place, or what it is that directs and sustains the whole process of life. When they try to explain the mystery about what makes our hearts beat, they say it is the autonomic nervous system that runs it. But who is this auto, this self? Look at these human eyes, which are such wonderful cameras, the brain, which is such a grand computer. Scientists may analyse what is happening, but we never pause to question and try to find out why all these blessings have been bestowed upon us. But now the time has come for sensible people everywhere to understand, through their own immediate experience, that we all have a purpose on this earth. The purpose of all our evolution and our development is simply that we have to become connected to this all-pervading power, so that we ourselves become divine this divine process works spontaneously sahaja it can be proved and is absolutely tangible much more than scientific findings and laws which can always be challenged and changed this process has now started on an en masse scale and is the fulfillment of william blake's most heartfelt desire would that all God's people were prophets! In this age of Kriti yoga through the compassion of the Param Chaitanya, divine love, the Kundalini is being raised in countless human beings, so that it is actually happening. God's people have become prophets, and what is more, they have powers to make others prophets too. There is, however, one small problem. The modern brain is full of too many ideas—not original ideas, but ideas which have been gathered through reading, through the media, and through the surrounding mental atmosphere. Whatever may be the case, the brain is oversaturated with ideas which largely belong to others. This makes it difficult or very slow for people to accept the truth of reality. It is not easy to convince people— there exists absolute truth, which is beyond the mind, that reality is at hand and can be achieved by every human being. Jesus said, The meek shall inherit the earth. He did not mean the weak, but those human beings who are strong enough to put aside their egoism and their conditionings. Modern man is neither strong nor meek. On the contrary, he is too snobbish, too arrogant, too conditioned, or too self opinionated to entertain the idea that there might be somebody who can actually tell him about truth, or reality, and even show him how he himself can achieve it. The truth, which is absolute, has to express itself in these modern times, and even if it is not accepted, it cannot die. On the contrary, if it is not accepted, it will expose all falsehood and thus destroy it. If the absolute truth is not accepted, it will destroy those very brains that reject it because they will take to other alternatives. In most cases, they will take to self-destructive lifestyles. They have accepted wrong ideas that originate from those many human beings who are teaching falsehood in the name of truth. It is an extraordinary thing to witness, but to approach the subject of absolute truth compassionately, one has to really beg people to listen, to hear about the truth, that they all have their divinity intact, and that it can manifest itself in the great event of their ascent through the kundalini awakening. It is such a great pity, I must say." that this kind of convincing and cajoling of the complicated Western brain takes such an unnecessarily long time. It is quite ironic that those leaders and teachers who are fake, who are modern anti-gods, who are against the divine, who are for the destruction of human beings, actually become very successful and achieve a worldwide following in such a short time. It is also true, however, because of the activity of the Param Chaitanya and law of polarity, that false teachers are revealed in good time for what they are, and all the false ideas perpetrated by them are being exposed and destroyed very quickly. They appear and establish themselves easily, but in this age of Kriti it is only for a short time. The trouble is that after the exposure of one guru— People are so weak that some immediately start looking around for another false teacher. They usually end up as lost, moneyless recluses. This guru-shopping is now a common and fashionable lifestyle of the seekers in the West. It is the same with other kinds of ideology. Communism has failed in Russia, while fundamentalism and racialism have filled a vacuum, and have begun to prosper in the so-called democracies. For those who are really in search of truth, it has to be accepted humbly that so far one has not found it, and indeed cannot find it on one's own. In the East, it is common knowledge that if you seek the highest truth, you have to become humble or meek, as Christ has said. This is extremely difficult for the Western mind to accept, because it means going beyond the ego. A Western gentleman who had come to me for the first time to learn Saj Yoga found that it was very easy to get self-realization without any effort and without paying any money. He was so filled with ecstasy that he went out into the garden shouting, I found it! When he came back, he was nearly dancing with joy and said, Now I'm going to write to all my friends who have been ardently seeking the truth for ages to tell them that I have felt this all-pervading divine power as the cool breeze of the Holy Ghost on my fingertips. Now I know that the truth is that one has to become the Spirit and that the all-pervading power of God's love exists, which we all have to feel through this evolutionary breakthrough on our central nervous system. With full confidence, I will tell them that it is a living process, that you cannot get it out of books, and that you cannot pay for your evolution. He got very excited and wrote many letters to his professors, his friends, and his colleagues, who had all been discussing and reading books about seeking day and night for many years. To his great surprise and disappointment, the response was rather lukewarm. Some did not answer him. Others answered saying, All right, we are happy that you have found it, but we have to seek in our own way. We hope that we will also find it, but in some other way. Some could not believe that it was so easy. Others said, You can't lead a normal life and find it. Because of one's bad deeds, one has to suffer and detach oneself from society, from all human ties, before one can even begin to find it. No one would listen to him when he said that he had found out the truth by Kundalini awakening. With a typical twist of modern advanced thinking that never likes to arrive at any conclusion, they said, Yes, this may work for you, but this cannot be the only way, and there must be other paths. He was deeply shocked to see that these people who had spent hours and hours meeting together, talking, reading and writing to each other, discussing how to find the absolute truth, were not even willing to listen to him when he told them that he actually had found the truth. Not everyone is strong and meek enough to face the truth. They all try to wriggle out of it, to escape the truth, by giving some yes-but explanation or other. However... As people say, the truth will come out by itself. In modern times, fortunately, someone who knows the truth about God and talks about it cannot be crucified and silenced. Of course, neither can such a person wait until these insensitive people are reborn with a more humble mind, because the kingdom of God that was promised is now at hand. And this is the moment when the truth must be faced. On the contrary, There are some half-baked Christians like the Adfi from France who are spreading stories against Sahaja Yoga through the French media without having any idea as to what is the truth. Unfortunately for many in Kali Yuga, like the friends of the Western gentlemen who wanted to shout about truth from the rooftops, seeking has developed its own momentum and people don't want to give up the activity of seeking even when they come face to face with what they are looking for. In the film, Modern Times, when Charlie Chaplin has been working on a conveyor belt lined with nuts and bolts, the activity of fixing the nuts creates such a nervous reaction in his body that even when he finishes and the conveyor belt stops moving, he still performs the same actions with his hands. This really is an analogy of those people who are running in the rat race of seeking and just can't get out of the habit." In this way, the seeking of truth has that nervous reaction which can no longer be controlled by putting the brake on or pausing for a moment in order to listen to someone who really can say how one finds the absolute truth. But the knowers of truth are always faced with blank incomprehension. As the poet Kabir has said, how can I explain what I know and see when the whole world is blind? Of course, since Kabir's time things have changed, and at this present moment I cannot say that all the world is blind because there are thousands and thousands who have come with open minds to know about absolute truth through Kundalini awakening. Surprisingly, there are now quite a number of these realized souls. In this book, we have to discuss the profound changes which have taken place in the West during this Kali Yuga, both negative and negative and positive. We have spoken about the decline of dharma, about the growing self-destructiveness of the West, but it is also a fact that many, many seekers of truth have been born in the West in modern times. The right conditions developed, especially after the Second World War, when Western society had lost respect for the value system of righteousness and honour that had previously existed. Even faith in the divine itself was challenged, and the seekers had to face a very confused and faithless society that began to arise at that time. Actually, the natural basis of Western culture is challenged by a four-pronged attack. One is, of course, science. The second is the intellectuals, heirs to the tradition of so-called enlightenment. The third is organized religions, fake gurus and cults. And the fourth one is the most powerful of all, the money-blinded media exploited by the entrepreneurs. The consequences of the aggression which Western powers indulged in through colonial conquest and exploitation eventually had to be faced through the law of polarity, and the West has had to reap the fruits of its former collective actions, karma-phalam. This is another blessing in disguise of Krita-yuga. Whatever wrongs have been done by one country to another have to be faced and paid for collectively by the aggressor. Of course, one also has to face individually the fruits of one's own actions. Many nations felt guilty about imperialism and colonial exploitations and admitted as a nation that it had been a mistake. But those whom they had aggressed and suppressed became vindictive, for violence begets violence. So, the chain of aggression and exploitation caused a derailment of the whole world, leading to the so called divisions, north south divisions, the divisions of the world into developed and underdeveloped, rich and poor. How can Western nations, and indeed those they exploited, get out of this guilt hate phenomenon? The vicious cycle of aggression, guilt, self hatred, is extremely destructive. It has to be said with complete clarity, it can only end when these nations know the absolute truth of divine love. Only the actualization of their ascent can save people in the Western world from inner destruction through guilt and self-hatred. People in the West talk grandly of spiritual life and of their ascent, but they do not even know what it is they are seeking. Thus, at the end of the great age of imperialism around 1918, with the beginnings of what is called modernism, an ignorant society thirsty for spirituality started seeking and suffering individually and also in groups through the phenomenon of war, making every kind of effort and trying out all kinds of methods to break through to reality. Many seekers were born at this time, but were destroyed in their own ignorance after succumbing to false teachings which promised much and gave nothing in return but financial ruin and psychological dependency. The law of polarity was at work here too. With the re-establishment of the pseudo-affluence of the sixties and seventies in the West, a few cunning people in India hearing the news that there was a market for seeking, decided to loot Western people of their excessive affluence. Many real antichrists came to Western countries, but especially to wealthy America. They set themselves up as very active gurus, offering false spirituality for sale. Anxious to exploit the restless, earnest seekers, they deftly stripped them of their wealth while destroying them in the bargain. To an outside observer, it is very surprising to see how such falsehood can so very easily be swallowed and accepted by the most educated and wealthiest people in the West, as if they have completely lost their traditional sense of values, and no longer know how to invest their minds and money wisely. It has happened, that it is the wealthy people who have invested their future spiritual life in the bank accounts of false gurus. Their naivety is not easy to understand unless we see it as a kind of concealed egoism, for perhaps they feel they can purchase their salvation without any further trouble to themselves by paying off the guru with their excess wealth. However, as Christ said, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, Compared with the people of the Third World, in the sixties and seventies at least, everyone in the West was rich. The fake gurus certainly knew how to pamper the egos or the weaknesses of the rich Western seekers, for, being money-oriented, these seekers had lost their sensitivity to the real riches of spirituality. Most of the seekers that I met during that time told me that although they knew they were looking for something, they were completely ignorant of what it was and have been mesmerized by these negative and false teachers. I have to say that it is truly lamentable the way earnest seekers have been exploited by these horrible so-called gurus from India, for seekers are a special category of people and as such they are very precious. William Blake describes them as men of God. They are the ones who have been seeking in many lifetimes to find the divine, and have often become lost in the web of words of false ideas, jalam in Sanskrit, as described by Adi Shankaracharya. I asked many, who had actually starved in order to buy a Rolls Royce for their guru, what had made them do such a thing? They explained that they never minded donating money to buy mere metal as their guru had promised them that he would give the spirit in return. These seekers were not only naive, but also unfortunate, because in most cases, the guru took their money and did, in fact, give them the spirit, a dead spirit, to possess them, mesmerize them, and make them bankrupt recluses. You have only to look at the tired and blank faces of the followers of these false gurus To know that the light of their spirit has been blown out And something horrible and destructive has taken its place Of course, sadly What enabled these false gurus to thrive in the West Was their cynical exploitation Of the noble ideas of freedom of expression And freedom of belief The problem is, of course That the idea of freedom Has become so corrupted but it has come to mean a complete abandonment of wisdom and righteousness at the cost of common sense and reason. Liberty has become the abandonment of all life-sustaining value systems and the freedom to go in for self-destruction regardless of the cost. The so-called gurus knew that the most valued commodity in modern times was no longer real freedom— the freedom to live and reach our highest potential as human beings, but, quite simply, money. So these cunning people freed the seekers of their wealth and also their health. There was a guru who used to send seekers to the Gobi Desert to find Nirvana. This is the surest way to get rid of the seeker and obtain all his properties and belongings. Money in modern times infects all kinds of so-called spirituality, and it has been claimed that even the Vatican counterfeited nine million dollar notes and distributed them through the Vatican Bank, the Bank of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, in these modern times, it would seem most religions are being run on the same money orientation or power orientation, So now let us look more closely at what these modern times have brought us, what they have changed in us, and why we have accepted these changes. Generally speaking, the present times are called modern times. It is quite a funny thing, but in modern times, it takes no time at all for anything to become out of date, old or antiquated. Thus, modern means presently new or new at the present moment which means that whatever is modern has only a very limited existence and that the state of being modern is momentary. So the word modernism is very misleading. It seems to mean presently accepted theories or current world view. But in modernism, everything is, in fact, constantly shifting and changing. It is an unstable succession of fads and cults that linger for a short while, then disappear but which often leave very deep impressions or dents on the human psyche. The sophisticated literary or philosophical meaning of modernism refers to the search for something new, or at least some diversion from the old through mental projections, often of a most irrational and frightening kind, but disguised and supported by rationality, or rather by rationalizations. When the stable world of traditional values is given up fully, only because it is out of date and thus despised, there is an experience of emptiness, of chaos and confusion. When all the well-tried pointers and bearings have been thrown overboard, the assumption is that the human mental activity, either rationality or irrationality, is the only valid means of finding out the truth of reality." Modernism has given rise to some very curious examples of the exploitation of irrationalism to find the meaning of life or the reason for existence. Psychology, Surrealism, Nazism have all risen out of the irrational side of human mental projections, and have been dressed up with a veneer of rationality. But unfortunately, rationality, whether it is being used consciously to cloak irrationality— or under the illusion that the linear constructions of human thought can lead to truth, is only another mental projection with no substance behind it. And one can never find reality through rational ventures. The problem is that the human mind can use rationality to explain or defend any idea, wild or profane, sane or insane, constructive or destructive, and develop it in any direction any model, pattern, or construction it chooses. The responses to the great problems of human life provided by rationality are also extremely strange, and, most confusingly, they differ from person to person, because rationality deals only with the relative and not with the absolute. For example, by rationality one cannot prove the existence of divinity or of divine love, but in reality one can feel it on one's fingertips. Surprisingly, if we consider how important rationality was for the so-called Enlightenment of the 19th century, when we try to evaluate the historical products of rationality, we find some which have proved to be disastrous. The most horrendous social models of this kind of rationality are provided by Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin. If rationality ultimately is the only driving force behind modernism, then at the end of the day one should not be surprised if it has to be seen that modernism consists of the limitless vagaries of the human ego, leading to sheer nonsense and idiocy, and even to sufferings and catastrophes. Rationality is most prized, of course, as an analytical and critical tool. But individualistic rationality can be extremely cunning and manipulative, particularly when it challenges the ego of another modern thinker through criticism. Truly creative writers and thinkers have always suffered at the hands of critics. The critic has no creativity of his own, and perhaps out of jealousy or a sense of inferiority, spends his time analysing, attacking, and attempting to destroy what has been created by another. He thus wastes the energy of the other ego and bloats his own ego in the bargain. However, even though the rationality of one person may not necessarily challenge the rationality of another person, and even though it may not be used in an aggressive way, it still can never give a clear-cut idea as to who is right and who is wrong it is a common phenomenon. Some think that one particular system of government or one kind of religious belief is good, while others conclude that the system of government or religion which they are following is equally good. This is why it is considered ill-mannered to talk about religion or politics in polite company. Of course, in the field of science, criticism is a healthy phenomenon obliging the scientist to provide proofs for his theories thus leading to many new and useful discoveries. But even science is not conclusive about what is real and true. Furthermore, it does not, despite its practical value, deal with the entirety of human problems, which, I have to say, can only be solved through self-knowledge. Of course, scientists are suspicious of anything which sounds mystical or up in the air. But the self-knowledge that I am talking about is concrete verifiable and tangible like science itself and completely understandable in rational terms however if one considers the absurdity the implications and the after effects of many otherwise apparently rational conclusions one has to say that rationality though we are very proud of it and boast of it is not such a responsible vehicle for wisdom in view of the unreliable results of applied rationality It is clearly wrong to have any such firm ideas and beliefs based solely on rational theories. There is no final answer to fundamental questions through the use of rationality alone, because discussion shows that each view may be partially right. One cannot definitely say that this one is fully right and the other is fully wrong. In our wisdom, we must understand that the truth, in effect... Is absolute, and not relative or variable as we commonly experience it. Like the six blind men describing an elephant from six different angles, one holding the trunk says, It is long, like a snake. Another, feeding a leg, says, It is massive, like a tree. Each has a very firm and indeed justified faith in the correctness of what he has found. But one contradicts the other because each has only a partial and relative view. Of course, rationality is not even as firmly anchored in reality as the blind man's perception. One may not even be in contact with the elephant, but perhaps, indeed, with the trunk of a tree, a piece of hanging rope, or a poisonous snake. Unless you have access to the absolute truth, which is a totality, unless you can see the whole elephant— how can you decide whether your view is the right one? However, there are many who may profess untruth with great confidence, proclaiming their authority with great pomp and circumstance, but they become aggressive, violent or even murderous if they are challenged by others, as the actions of many so-called religious fundamentalists amply demonstrate. Moreover, all kinds of cults, which appear to be very benevolent from the outside, teach the seekers that this world is coming to an end. The disciples of these kinds of cults may become fond of violence and start killing people outside the cult as the great warriors of the god of destruction. Some of the fake gurus kill their own disciples to plunder the money which has been looted by the disciples, who are expert thieves. Some of them who talk of the end of the world do not allow the disciples to marry. Some rape their female disciples who become pregnant and kill their unborn or newly born children secretly. Secrecy is the key word of all such world-ending cults. Only on the firm foundation of absolute truth can one have complete confidence and an absolutely peaceful, non-violent stand in the face of the relative world of uncertainty contradiction, and confusion. Such a person like William Blake is an example of what is truly meant by the word saint, a person who states the truth simply as he sees it with his higher vision and does not react vehemently or violently to contradiction and scorn, but pities his or her aggressors for their blindness and ignorance. However, in modern times, What impresses one is not a simple and unassuming statement of the truth, but superficial showmanship and display. When I was on a lecture tour in the USA, the television interviewers in Boston asked me how many Rolls Royces I had. When I told them I did not have even one, they actually refused to interview me because I was not in the business. Of course, I do not blame the Boston TV people, especially as they work in a society in which the power of money is the ultimate criterion. This is how you have to survive if you want to get somewhere in the turmoil of modern society, where rationality and egoism have become like two fixed blinders on a horse whose body has no substance but money. Now, because of the natural limitations on the power and scope of rationality, A person who can say with authority what is absolutely right or absolutely wrong has to be an enlightened person. It is beyond the normal limitations of the human mind to say something about truth so emphatically. And if such a person not only announces but manifests that truth as reality and expresses it in his life and work, then one should, after all, pay serious attention to such a personality. Such a person is a saint, or a seer, a greatly evolved soul whose unique individuality is free of all taints of egoism or conditionings. He is, we might say, meta modern, and does not care for the limitations of rational understanding. He does not care for the norms imposed by the cult of money, or the power. Of the orientations of fads and fashions in modern times. To a merely rational person who thinks that all ideas are merely opinions, such a person may appear to be an egoist. But the test is that through his lifetime he will not do anything that jars, or that is considered sinful, or anything that goes against human benevolence, nor will he create destructive ideas in the minds of the people. On the contrary, whatever he does is constructive and compassionate and creates peace over his entire area of activity. Because it serves the interests of a fuller and more perfect life and promotes human ascent, his work is of an eternal and absolute nature. It is important to verify exactly what rationality is, this vehicle and basis of modern life, if we can understand its value and its limitations, we shall be able to enjoy whatever fruits it can offer while avoiding the pitfalls it puts in our way. Firstly, rationality is not necessarily empirical, it doesn't necessarily conform to the facts of human experience, and if the beginning of the thought or theory is not rooted in reality, the end, or the final results of such a thought, or theory, could well be disastrous in practice. When such rationality becomes collective, then it is extremely dangerous. Not only may one person be hurt, but many, and sometimes a whole nation or many nations can be hurt, or even destroyed through the effects of such collective illusions. Rationality just creates systems that appear possible, without necessarily being true or real. Often, rationality could equally well prove the opposite to be true, and that, in turn, may later be proved to be flawed or fraudulent. Rationality can make a man feel like a worm, or like a hero. The problem is that all these manifestations of rationality are on the relative plane— created as they are by human beings who have no innate guiding principles of wisdom. Whenever they try to project rationality and construct a system, it is merely their conditionings or ego that they project. Far from offering something substantial and real, they are merely projecting themselves arbitrarily towards a goal of their own creation. Rationality moves in a straight line, like a wild boar who cannot change his course once he has started charging. The wild boar, as often as not, misses the target, and goes on until he is completely exhausted. This happens to many intellectuals in the relative world, who pursue their ideas to the extreme without noticing that real life is fluid and always changing. The goalposts have been moved, and they have missed the point. Being modern, always on the crest of the wave, they are caught in perpetual motion and they cannot slow down or stop to see where they are going or how they are taking others for a ride. Thus the rationalist notion of truth is normally a linear movement or a mere mental projection which takes an idea through to its logical conclusion. Of course it may have some spark of insight in it, up to a certain point, but because it is not based on an absolute vision, it has no substance of truth in it, and it starts falling, and ultimately recoils or boomerangs on the person who has projected this idea, or on the people who have accepted this system. It relapses and fails, because it lacks the strength of reality, and ultimately it cannot sustain its own random flight. This explains why so many apparently benevolent solutions, based on rationality alone, have often turned out to be full of destructive elements. The theories of Sigmund Freud are very good examples of this. Now, after such a long time, people have started to find out how distorting and fraudulent they are, and how the psychoanalytic treatment propounded by him Has turned out to be a mixture of hocus-pocus and brainwashing. It is now clear that Freud did not know what the unconscious is. This was already apparent to one of his first disciples, C. G. Jung, who was later to describe the unconscious as the source and matrix of all great creative ideas, as the basis of all reality, and not just a sort of personal dustbin full of primitive drives, Which was Freud's limited and destructive view of it. Psychoanalytic theories, far from helping people to lead happier lives, as Freud claimed they would, have, in fact, done great harm, and have been largely responsible for removing all sense of morality from the minds of Western people who have accepted Freud's extremely undermining theories with complete naivety. They even congratulate themselves on overcoming their resistance, which is the natural revulsion that all normal human beings feel towards Freud's central and favourite theme of the so-called Oedipus complex, and have swallowed whole Freud's personal obsessions without feeling sick. If Freud had come to India to propound his theories, he could not have survived the anger and wrath of the people who have an innate sense of chastity and morality, an understanding of what is good and true, and above all, a very deep respect for motherhood. Why did our Lord Jesus Christ say on the cross when he was dying, Behold the mother, meaning look out for the mother? It is one of the main teachings of the profound traditional wisdom of India that the primordial mother is the origin of all things, and everything tends to flow naturally back towards her. It is only in the great happening of Saj Yoga that it is possible to fully understand what it means to enter the body of the mother again, the ocean of peace and compassion, as the enlightened cell in the purest form, as the drop becomes the ocean, and becomes part of the mother's living body. Freud was a man with a very small ignoble mind, who tried to reduce everything— including these great truths, to the puny dimensions of his own perverse obsessions. Fortunately in India, not only the learned, but even ordinary people know what reality is. It is described clearly in the ancient Puranas who is a false guru and who is a true guru, and what is right teaching and what is wrong. These are fundamental and eternal truths, which cannot be changed, or modify to fit in with some sort of new diversion or a distorting and dangerous fad, like Freud's theories. Reality and truth are not products of rational or linear thinking. They are derived from absolute wisdom, as it manifests itself spontaneously, coming from the light of the spirit. Prior to realisation, one may or may not agree, but the truth is that the spirit is the reflection of God Almighty in our heart. Only after self-realization, and only then, there is a direct experience of the Spirit. It then manifests its powers in the human personality, and its light enlightens the consciousness into a new awareness. The divine intelligence of the Spirit radiates on all sides. It does not have a linear movement like rational thinking, It is not partial, tendentious, or manipulative, but is simply like the rays of the sun. It enlightens every area of darkness and ignorance. The power of glowing reality radiates in the spirit on all sides and penetrates into all the deepest questions and problems. The power of the spirit is unlimited, and it continues enlightening every area, even the most difficult and obscure. There is no question of it reaching a point where it must recoil and lead the mind into confusion and error, as the linear consciousness inevitably does. On the contrary, it enlightens wherever one's attention goes, and one sees reality with complete clarity in a balanced and tangible way. That is because. Reality is what it is. Unlike the limited ego, blind consciousness, the spirit neither wishes nor needs to manipulate any idea to fit in with rational projections, to suit the demands of an argument or of some mental construction. The trouble is that truth cannot compromise. It stands on its foundations of deep, pure love. This is why the one who knows the truth sometimes shuns other people. He cannot adjust his vision to fit in with the most popular, successful or fashionable ideas of others' rational projections. He stands on the pedestal of the absolute, and he knows that beyond the confusion and chaos of the rationalizing modernizers is the realm of reality, the absolute truth. He knows that this reality cannot be achieved by rationality within the limitations of the ego, but by our ascent. This is not something imaginary, but the actualization of the experience of our soul or the spirit. The spirit is like the steady axis of a wheel. If our attention reaches the immovable, firm axis at the very center of the wheel of our existence, which is constantly moving we become enlightened by the spirit, the source of inner peace, and reach a state of complete calm and self-knowledge. However, when our awareness remains attached to the ego on the periphery of the wheel, there is a continuous movement in the normal course of our lives, and we live on the level of a merely relative understanding of the turmoil that surrounds us. Apart from this limiting effect of the ego, all kinds of desires, expectations, and conditionings also affect and distort our consciousness, reaching our superficial physical or mental senses, causing strain, stress, and complete exhaustion. In contrast to this, the innate quality of the spirit raises us above all artificial, unrealistic chaos into the realm of pure reality, emitting peace within and also outside, in our surroundings. This is not something which can be demanded or forced or paid for. It happens spontaneously, through a living process of evolution. After our ascent, the consciousness, which is unsteady and relative, becomes one with the all-pervading divine consciousness. This is because, through self-realization, the spirit knows itself and is completely self-radiant, absolutely confident, and self-sufficient. One can say that the spirit is complete awareness and is therefore supremely aware of its own nature. Now, as I have said, the nature of the intelligence of the spirit is like that of a unique light which emits radiance on all sides and goes on emitting light as far as it can reach without ever encountering any polarity effect as a reaction. The consciousness which comes from the light of the spirit perceives, transforms, and creates. The intelligence of the spirit is thus neither simply and exclusively the cause nor the effect of anything, but it is cause and effect combined together. It is neither active nor passive. It therefore neither has to manipulate nor to take orders. It has the built-in quality simply to act in order to be effective. We might say, it is, therefore it does. Take the sun's rays. They just fall on a tree and create chlorophyll. This process does not require any intention or mental projection. This capacity to know the real and to be effective is simply built into the spirit. The seed which is put into Mother Earth sprouts because both the seed and the Mother Earth have a built-in quality to produce this effect. It is simply, according to the nature of things, that everything which is truly living is works out in a very spontaneous way. Everything naturally tends to become what, in potential, it already is. The mental process, on the other hand, does not have such spontaneous emissions of activity because it is not rooted in the creative source of all things, which is the spirit. Whatever it does is deliberate and ego-oriented or conditioned compulsive, it moves in a linear manner, which does not look back nor from side to side. Ultimately, it cannot sustain itself, as there is no strength of truth in it, so it recoils and harms the original idea. For example, take the extreme case of Hitler, who was so convinced by the operation of his own rationality that the Jews were destroying Germany that he propounded a theory that the Germans were noble Aryans, the highest race, and that the Jews were racially inferior. This was a rational theory, but it was nowhere near the truth. How can Germans be the highest race when they killed human beings in gas chambers and enjoyed the horrible sight? There were also very sweet children among those who were being gassed. It is obvious to any human being was not being blinded by rationality, that only the lowest primitive could do that. The final solution of such a rational construction was Hitler's own destruction, because his idea of destroying the Jews was a mental projection, and all mental projections end up recoiling on themselves. The polarity effect occurs when one crosses a certain natural limit in one's mental projection, that is confined to the limited range of one's personality and ego consciousness. It then recoils upon the one who started the process in the same way as an arrow, which shot towards the infinite but attached to a string, will rebound and hurt the archer. Even on a superficial mundane level, our own daily experience should teach us that we should not pursue our rationality wherever it leads, but rather watch and restrain it within its proper bounds rationality has its usefulness but one should not go to extremes without judging what after effects the polarity of our excessive rationality may lead to it is surprising however that because of the frantic power of the ego no one finds this lesson easy to learn many people have come to me suffering terribly from the effects of their mental projections and even as I try to cure them, they will justify the thing that is destroying them. So what if I've done that? What's wrong with that? What's wrong? What's wrong? This seems to be the mantra, or the constant refrain of modern man. However, if one is ready to learn from everyday experience, and does not automatically chant, what's wrong? What's wrong? One can achieve the practical wisdom of the middle path, avoiding the extremes. With practice, we can confine our rationality to certain clear limits, and so attain our balance. In this way, one might remain a little more alert and unharmed, and one certainly would not destroy oneself or others. If one introspects, and says with humility of heart, I do not yet know the truth, but I have to find it, then, in time, this humility may be rewarded, and one may achieve one's ascent. If this happens, the person's attention comes into the centre, neither on the left nor on the right, that is, neither dominated by his conditionings from the past nor the orientations of his ambitious ego. Such a balanced person is very well suited for self-realisation by which he will know the truth in its absolute form. We can avoid the problems of rationality and the worst confusions of modernism by experiencing and understanding what is meant by perceiving reality in the light of the spirit. Another curse which has been predicted of these modern times, Kali-yuga or the age of conflict or contradiction resulting in confusion, Branti in Sanskrit, is that people will very easily take to sinful and destructive activities. It should also have been predicted that those in power will permit and encourage these activities, as it suits them well. They will not try to solve the social problems that arise from this by going to the root of the self-destructiveness, which is at the heart of modernism, but will only offer piecemeal and short-term solutions that will create more problems which may never be sorted out. For example, one Mr. Simpson a precious hero of football, is accused of killing his wife. As a result, several articles appear in American magazines arguing that we should not have marriages and families. The Americans have only a 200-year-old society. In these few years, they have done everything to destroy their society. How can they be authorized to talk about society or marital life and to destroy other societies in the world with long traditions. This means just treating the symptoms and not the cause by killing the basic roots of society. Governments will no longer be concerned for the real benevolence of their people, and power will go into the hands of fraudulent financial interests, who will then be able to purchase votes by flattering the lowest and most selfish desires of the people, particularly through the press and other persuasive media like television. What we actually see in modern times, however, is beyond any prediction and imagination. The best example of the humility of intelligence is seen not so much in the constructions of the intellectuals, but in those deep poets and artists who are meek in heart and who paint in sheer simple dedication to their creator. In their mental projections, they see the world that the Creator has made in His own image. The spontaneous creations of these modest people are eternal reflections of nature and of the divine. The exuberance and joy that pours through their paintings in every stroke of their brush opens our hearts like fragrant lotuses. There is a unique, silent inspiration that is emitted from their work." There may also be some so-called naive or rustic paintings that echo the same style of art. Unfortunately, in these modern times we are producing no great masters' paintings. At best we copy the old masters, or buy and sell their work at very high prices as an investment. In modern times we have given up the notion of eternal art, and taken to so-called modern art instead which is so subjective that it can only be understood by the artist himself, or requires him to give a big commentary to convince our rationality of the great value of his creation. And then there are always the critics, who themselves, having no sense of the Eternal or of the Spirit, will praise to the skies any sort of nonsense that manages to look novel by going against all good sense and normality. Of course, Modern art can also have a very evolved manifestation, if it is emitted from the formless spirit. It breaks the lines and forms of conventional art to create a formless substance, which is full of light and transparent meaning. But to achieve this potential, one has to be a realized soul, who can paint his formless joy in such a way as to represent and omit that abstract, spontaneous enjoyment of the spirit by the spirit. Such art requires no commentary and no discussion. Only a poet can describe it. A poet like William Blake, who was a great, evolved soul and seer, could also draw and paint the visions he described in his poetry. The imagination of such poets touches all the beautiful heights that only an enlightened soul can appreciate and enjoy. All those evolved souls, whether they are sitting in a simple village weaving a shawl for the goddess, or singing the praise of the eternal and everlasting in divine poetry, or playing the divine music, are all the Creator's own divine ripples. They may sometimes not be understood. They may be criticized by ignorant, blind people, but they work and sing and play for themselves and for those who have divine knowledge and who can understand the world they portray. To communicate this vision, it is not necessary to use any vulgarity or the kind of sensuous suggestions exploited in the modern age to express the artistic impulse. If it is pure art, then... It is in itself stunning and extremely joy-giving, so much so that when you see or hear such a work of pure art, all thoughts stop, and you just start witnessing the beauty of that joy which the artist felt in his own heart while creating it. This finer perception of what is real and true is the gift of the realized soul and it is of an entirely different kind from the products of mere rationality. Lacking this finer perception, the intellectual critics, who themselves cannot draw even one line, bring their ego-oriented and limited rationality into play, which gives them free rein to criticise and judge any budding artist, to kill his work, and wound and numb his sensibility. For example, I heard a masterly orchestral piece the other day on television. This music was composed by an 80-year-old English lady. It was very beautiful and enchanting. But the next day, a half-page criticism appeared in the newspaper, deprecating and degrading that masterly work. After that, the composer disappeared into hiding. What is the driving force behind this so-called sophisticated criticism? As I said before, is it the jealousy of those who have no talent to create and have learned the trade of being a critic instead? The problem is that one cannot learn in school to appreciate true art. It is not a question of mere mental understanding, but an innate spiritual experience. The merely mental appreciation of a critic is actually very dangerous, because it may neglect, or destroy what is genuine and real, and give an artificial glamour and air of value to what is meaningless and trite, or ultimately destructive. But why should they criticise? Everyone has his own way, so why mislead others with the bombastic words which the critics have been trained to employ? In the same way, the journalist comes to the interview with a machine gun— to shoot down the ideas of the very humble and wise. If we look at its products, we see that modernism has principally created only works that reflect shallowness and confusion, and has nourished only expertise in mental criticism. But fortunately, there is a built-in solution to all this. If all the great artists were to disappear, as we can see is actually happening, because they have been criticised because of their very creativity and innate sensitivity, and have been shocked into silence, what would be the result? The law of polarity would act, and the critics would disappear, because who would be there for them to criticise? They would have to begin to criticise each other, which is exactly what is happening, because they are like programmed machines which cannot stop spinning and churning out their endless yards of criticism. They would no doubt eventually criticise each other and go out of existence. The problem with modernism is that it is always destroying and superseding its own constructions. Let us look at another beautiful example of polarity at work. From the 16th to the 19th century, it was considered modern to invade other countries. Rampant plundering and colonialism were fashionable and prevalent. In the twentieth century, it became modern to take an enlightened interest in other countries. But the law of polarity ensures that whatever new trend one may take to, the pendulum will swing back again, and we have already touched on some of the problems of the West that could be seen as the direct result, via the law of polarity, of those misconceptions of the past. During these centuries, rationality, at its height, worked through the medium of the white-skinned races, who elaborated on a linear concept derived from rational thinking that all other skin colours were somehow not made by God, who they assumed was certainly white, and most probably Anglo-Saxon, and had bestowed a different colour upon other races as a kind of divine punishment. This sort of ignorance may appear very funny to us, but, armed with this special kind of rationality, or rather with the rationalizations of imperialism and colonialism, they actually killed thousands and even millions of people, plundering their land and making slaves of the population. As a result, one cannot find a single American Indian in North America living freely and naturally in the traditional way, because they are all locked up in reservations generously given to them by the invaders one has to go to the museum to see their pictures, painted with the headdress of American Indians, but strangely with the faces of Anglo-Saxons. Thank God some divine providence took Columbus to America and kept him there, instead of to India, where he thought he was heading. Otherwise, the coloured people of India, which was Hindustan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Tibet, Nepal, Afghanistan, and all other Stans, with their ancient and sophisticated cultures, would have also been completely devastated and destroyed by the superiority complex of the conquistadors, those bullfighters of Spain, whose great contribution to civilization was creating the peace and the calm of the Catholic churchyard. But to make up for Columbus's neglect, the great Anglo-Saxons came to India from England, did their best to neutralise the heritage and deep wisdom of India, and then gracefully left after three hundred years of respectable, albeit forced, hospitality from their hosts. They left India peacefully, but with this great country disastrously divided in two, resulting in three different parts into which the seeds of violent destruction were already sown. Now, despite the complete break-up and demise of the plundered empire which was founded so firmly on the rights of individualism and the rational theories of a united kingdom, that rationality of colonialism has lingered on, with the same potent fire of polarity burning within it. The United Kingdom itself is now witnessing the stress between its different constituent countries, which are not only fighting with each other to defend their individualism but are busy using violence in an effort to destroy each other. Until the recent peace process commenced, every day people were being killed in Northern Ireland defending or attacking the vestiges of colonialism, and at regular intervals the great and safe city of London was blasted by terrorists' bombs. No one knows how long this peace before war is going to last." Now let us try to clarify how the polarity of this manifestation of rational and mental construction acts. When the Anglo-Saxons were busily plundering those inferior cultures of the coloured races, especially in America, their ego developed to the extent that they were thoroughly blinded to reality, and they began to think that their arrogance and their inhumanly cruel behaviour was perfectly normal and quite all right. They found, according to all the rules and logic of rationality, and to their great satisfaction, that they had nicely plundered the whole world, crushed all the inferior races into submission, and had now settled down comfortably to enjoy the fruits of their arrogance. Of course, again polarity started manifesting itself. America particularly began to prosper, and despite the great idealism of the American Revolution against colonialism, the people gradually became slaves to luxury, and the victims of their own egoism. As time passed, they began to treat the non-Anglo-Saxons, all the Jews, Hispanics, Italians, and Russians, as inferior races, and they tormented them as foreigners in that land of the American Indians, which they now assumed was their own. Many perhaps fired by religious zeal, claimed that it was their birthright and that they had been chosen and blessed by God to do the great work of destroying the American Indians who were primitive and did not have white skin as God Almighty most certainly had. Now the white-skinned people have beautiful cities full of lovely houses and gardens. All the lush forests and fertile lands that once belonged to others are now their own, and they have become the legal masters of those lands and all that they produce. Those people who are killed or driven away, simply because they were living on their own lands, are finished forever. There is no need to think anymore or to worry about them, because everything can be explained and justified through the skillful use of self-opinionated rationality. But unfortunately, this aggression has not in fact finished by the natural law of polarity, when you aggress other people and destroy them, then that same aggression turns back against you, the aggressor. The same people who once prided themselves on being individualists and intelligent rationalists with a highly developed culture, the same Anglo-Saxons and other arrogant colonising tribes, are now the first to take to all the collective, self-destructive ventures that are currently prevalent. It is they who so readily indulge collectively in the use and abuse of drugs and narcotics. These drugs are flooding in from lands like Colombia and Bolivia, where the original inhabitants and owners of the land of America, the Indians, still exist, neglected and ground down by poverty. They fled to the higher mountains to save themselves from the attacks of the white-skinned people. It should not come as a surprise to us that their hiding places today are the nuclei of polarity in action. The drugs of the worst type, like crack cocaine, are made in these two countries, and are then voluntarily smuggled into the United States by Americans in order to degrade and kill their own people, while the local people do not indulge in such dangerous drugs to kill themselves. They just make drugs, and the white skins, like the Spanish, etc., Exported to Washington. The results of drug addiction in America are not limited to any one city or to any category of people. They are so widespread that you find indiscriminate killings in the busy streets of Miami or San Francisco or Los Angeles, as if the uninhibited killing of the American Indians by the squatter whites created such a momentum that they are now killing their fellow Americans without rest. It seems that the killing game must be practiced like tennis in order to keep the talent for killing exercised for so long against the American Indians nicely up to date. Now they are mugging and even killing people who are more affluent than themselves. So as these developed societies become richer and richer by another action of the law of polarity, they also create increasing numbers of thieves and more and more sophisticated mafias Who make money by kidnapping rich people and spreading corruption and misery wherever they spring up. These alternative empires of the mafia cannot be controlled, but can and do themselves control everyone, even governments and politicians. The modern Western world places such importance on making money that money has become a hanging rope around the neck of everyone born under the unlucky star of modernism. However, we should understand that all these thieves and the mafias are there simply to give a counterbalance according to the law of polarity. But theft is not confined to a criminal class. Every conceivable category of people from the top to the bottom of American society is either indulging in corruption, thieving, and looting without any sense of decency or honour or silently suffering the atrocities of these thugs and vagabonds. They thrive and build up their tribal kingdoms. Violence has reached such a level that if one has to travel to America, one should not wear any watch or jewellery, not even a wedding ring. The eroding and slow destruction of normal human values, the eternal dharma that all human beings spontaneously respect, if they are brought up in contact with traditional values, has reached a terrible peak in America, where it is fast becoming the norm that people indulge in excessive drinking and excessive drug intake as a matter of course. Even more serious is sexual abuse. Intoxicated by their so-called freedom, people have lost all sense of decency, natural modesty and restraint. More and more reports show that they even indulge in the abuse of their own children. Even animals mother their offspring better than such brutes mother their children. It is beyond human conception and condemnation, but it seems that they have become collectively immune to all normal moral values in this violent culture which is covered in the garb of so called fun. This Coca Cola culture is full of Halloween-style celebrations, drug-oriented discos, and music that bombards the senses with vulgarity and extreme indecency. How could a poor, primitive Indian seer astrologer envision the future to predict this degraded, immoral state in the modern era? Now, recently, we have heard the news that 200 children have been abused by the police in America that is, by the very people they should trust for their protection and well-being. In these modern times, children have suffered most horribly, but this is perhaps even worse than a gas chamber death for these abused children, because they have to go on living with such cruel damage done to their young lives. Many Catholic priests in Canada have been destroying innocent children. It was shocking to hear recently that the top priest of the Catholic Church in Austria was charged with the offence of abusing children. His dress was all red in colour. I wish he could enter into the arena of bullfights, with a very deadly bull facing him. Even the children themselves might feel it preferable to die than to live a life of such devastation. It happened quite recently that a very young girl, who was pushed by her parents into the leading role in a horror film about demonic possession, committed suicide when she reached adulthood. Perhaps, because such heartless people who abuse the innocence of children by doing such heinous things, are not described in any predictions, so the West does not have faith in any Indian predictions. They feel very strongly but the ancient Indian astrologers had no clear insights. What about Nostradamus? It is as if those ancient seers could not bear to relate such stark horrors, but no one would have believed, until this time, the lowest point of Kali Yuga. When I read the news about the abuse of children in America in the newspaper, I was really shocked. An American lady in the next seat, who was also flying to America, was surprised as to why I should be so shocked. She said, I'm not at all shocked, because if you think about it rationally, you will know that similar things are happening all over the world. Only the American media aren't afraid to print such news. Individual rational justification has been taken to its logical conclusion in these new dimensions of collective thought, or rather of collective escape from introspection. Such careless, irresponsible thinking means avoiding the issue of the dangerous, destructive earthquakes of humanity. Also, it means complete ignorance of the painstaking, respectfully preserved values of the traditional culture. If Abraham Lincoln were alive, how would he react to this kind of society? Thank God, all these great souls are resting in peace." It is only we, the modern people, who have to be shocked all the time by the sensationalism of the modern life. Nowadays, no one seems to be safe in any of these developed countries. This is because everybody is busy using their rationality to explain or justify violence like the American lady I spoke to on the plane. Or again, with a constant presentation of violence as entertainment in the media— The public is being made shamelessly and inhumanly insensitive to such things. And, as we see, people are quite brazenly happy to make money out of all kinds of horrible things. They have no time to bother about anything else. Even those who have enough money are so greedy that they want to have more, by hook or by crook, from those people who are supposed to have more than them, and even from those who have less." For someone from a different culture. It is a sin to speak about the public abuse of drugs, particularly of alcohol. Drinking alcohol has been elevated by the Anglo-Saxon and European races almost to a great religious practice. They do not discuss religion, whether it is good or bad. Drinking is the sanctum sanctorum, and those who do not drink are considered strange or weird. Even the spokesmen of their societies, the intellectuals and those of the so-called higher echelons, while under the influence of alcohol are seldom models of sanity, leave alone wisdom. On the contrary, they are collectively drowned in barrels of lager, spirits, and every conceivable kind of wine and intoxicants. Of course, they have invented a thousand different justifications, and even in public, via the media. They show their brilliance by defending this self-destroying habit that blurs the clear vision of wisdom. Unfortunately, this drinking culture has now spread to countries which traditionally have avoided alcohol like the plague. Once I happened to stay with a friend. Her husband was a highly placed government servant, but both were habitual drunkards. I was surprised to see how lousy their home was, with nothing in it of any other use but for drinking parties. They did not even have a spare blanket for me. Such intellectuals and top people have made a whole Bible out of the culture of alcohol, and thanks to the marketing genius of countries without any principles, have advanced towards their destruction. The French, who have made a very sophisticated culture out of rotten grape juice and rotten cheese, are now wondering why their grapes are becoming white and do not ferment, and why the whole country is obsessed with their sick livers and lizard-like skins. Is it polarity acting on them? And is it polarity again that is giving them the great shock of economic recession? After the election of Mr. Chirac, a long list of his colleagues in the government appeared in the newspaper. They were arrested and jailed, but if they must have drink and drunkards around, how can they do it with the pay they get? Also, most of them are very fond of having mistresses and appointing the mistresses to very high levels in the French government. No one seems to know why recession is spreading like a disease in all the Western countries who boast so much about their economies and their economics. A subtle reason is their consumption of beer, wine, and alcohol, which leads to the destruction of all real freedom and saps the power and the desire both to work and to enjoy the pure life. In their lives there is an instant crisis if they cannot drink in a pub or cannot have a holiday from which perhaps there is no return. Christ has said that alcohol leads to debauchery. I say that in the modern period it also leads to economic recession. Even in churches, for Holy Communion, they give the worshippers rotten fermented wine for their spiritual welfare. Their explanation is that Christ made wine out of water for the wedding feast at Cana. Of course, you can make grape juice out of water with divine vibrations, but how could those divine vibrations create something which destroys your consciousness and pulls you down to a subhuman level? Logically, How can there be an instant wine? It has to rot for ages to be the best. However, for truly modern drinking people, there would be no Holy Communion without vodka, the strongest Russian alcohol, because ordinary wines may not give the spiritual effect to a drunkard or the one who is used to very strong alcohol. I cannot understand how they can use Christ to support the use of fermented wine which goes against one's awareness, when, on the contrary, he came to help us ascend above the common human awareness of rationality. Christ made the wine at Cana instantaneously. He did not allow the grape juice to ferment. All wines and liqueurs otherwise, even Benedictine, that blessed liqueur made so lovingly by the monks in France, are fermented, and the best wines are the most foul-smelling, made from thousand-year-old, truly rotten grapes. Those who are lucky enough to taste them say, Ah, heavenly! Yes, it is true. They smell like nothing on earth, and those who are drunk smell worse than pigs. Anyone who does not drink cannot bear to stand near them, and yet, in the developed countries, this is the state that everyone seems to aspire to be in. It seems as if they have lost their sense of smell, As it is, they themselves smell because bathing is out of fashion in France. French bathing means sprinkling oneself with perfumes and then feeling that French culture is the highest. At a big reception, one has to shake hands sometimes with more than 500 such people. Once they start drinking, they may go on until 10 or 11 o'clock at night, even though the reception started at 6 and is supposed to end at 8 o'clock. This is the only time when they are not always looking at their watches. The problem is that when they eventually do have to leave, they insist on entertaining their poor host or hostess, who has been standing for hours with nothing to eat or drink, watching them slowly losing consciousness, by shaking hands, squeezing, pressing, and twisting their hands, until they feel quite numb and faint. The poor host's, have been busy shaking hands with those who are arriving in a constant stream, and much before they are over with the incoming guests, before they can sit for a few seconds and revive themselves with some pure water or tea, they have to start saying goodbye to the ones who are leaving because they can't even drink anymore. This is one of the many aspects of glorious entertainment in Western society. Of course, people rationalise this sort of crazy behaviour by saying it is not a modern system at all, but a traditional one, and therefore it must be good. But to anyone with an ounce of common sense, it is so obviously a complete waste of money and energy. At such gatherings you will seldom hear them talking about their work or anything sensible, but mostly about scandals and other idle gossip. But if you are in the position of having to hold such a reception— then beware, particularly of the French, because they must kiss the hostess on both cheeks, if not the host as well. In these days of all kinds of easily transmissible diseases, I think at least this horrifying tradition could be cancelled. But there is a more serious side to all this. The drain on both private and national resources that such consumption of alcohol represents is very significant. If such a thing would be possible, a statistical survey of the expenses incurred and the positive results achieved by such receptions and parties, as well as daily habitual drinking, should be made and discussed in the Parliament of every country. For the societies of the developed world to spend such a large proportion of their national income on trying to stay as unconscious as possible is a sign of great folly." the developing Third World to be lured into following their example, and to spend so much time and money on diplomatic relations in this way, is unpardonable. Even Indian embassies seem to be well-trained in alcohol parties. England is, of course, steeped in the traditions of alcohol. The most beautiful and imposing building in any village is invariably a pub. It's the village social centre, they say. But the people who meet in the pub are already either in a drunken state, or they have gone there in order to get into one, usually as quickly as they can. Before meeting anyone, they must have a drink, otherwise they cannot begin to relate to each other. They even celebrate the deaths of their relations with champagne. The point some of them make is that this is the only way to get out of your feelings. The more alcohol that is consumed the less people have feelings for each other and they start losing the moral sense of the nature and value of relationships. In a recent example from people who are part of the alcohol culture, an eighty-year-old grandmother writes love letters to her own eighteen-year-old grandson, and they are published on the front page of the newspapers as if it were such a great happening. This sort of confusion about relationships is a direct result of alcohol, which manifests in the dulling of the moral sense, by the constant intake of what is actually a poison, and which numbs and slowly destroys the moral, sublime human feelings towards each other. And yet, alcohol is so respected in these countries that I met a doctor of philosophy in Canada who earned his doctorate in England by writing a very complicated account of how spiritual ascent could be achieved through drinking." The effects of alcohol on human awareness and human behaviour are, however, far from raising the level of consciousness and refining the moral quality of people's lives. As I have found in my work, it is very difficult to give realisation to habitual heavy drinkers or alcoholics. Some of them have become so fed up with disappointment in their genuine search for truth that in despair they have taken to alcoholism. If by chance their habit is corrected by any means other than realisation, they mostly fall immediately into some other habit, like gambling, chasing women or men, or drugs. This is because alcohol destroys even the moral capacity and desire and balance for lofty life, or ideas, or for higher awareness, spiritual and moral growth. In Western societies, People treat the consumption of alcohol like a religious ritual. They themselves would be shocked, but I would say that they are no different from the Rastafarians who have taken to drugs as one of their rituals and who are rarely not in a state of possession. Most of the crimes committed nowadays may be in the state of drunkenness or in order to feed alcohol or drug addiction. But in the meta-modern era, the age that is now beginning... Those who will be awakened will be freed from all such compulsive, destructive habits. I know so many would not like to give up this deadly addiction, which is so sophisticated that you cannot invite anyone for dinner if you are not going to offer drinks, by which I mean alcohol. One has to study the drink dictionary. A servant come friend of Queen Victoria, John Brown, believed that if a man does not drink and has no such weakness— he is not a full-fledged man. There is a saying in the Marathi language, if the bottle, alcohol, enters through one door, Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth and prosperity, runs away through another. When a human being is not in his senses, how can you expect him to have a sense of duty towards his wife, his children, the society, or his country at large? He can neither work properly nor enjoy his normal human relations and responsibilities. His attention will be so distorted, his liver will be out, and he will become a very hot-tempered man. What is true of one drinking man is, of course, true of whole societies in the West in these modern times. Apart from the recession, which has struck them as an even greater disaster, created by their drinking culture... Is the complete undermining of the value system that traditionally supported and enhanced their moral and social relations. It seems it is a very old custom to join drinking parties and to visit pubs, but even so, all this must have been in moderation. Even French writers like Guy de Maupassant, Molière, and Emile Zola have all made fun or ridiculed this habit of drinking. In modern times, there is no limit to anything. This seems to be the real achievement for advanced modern people, to cross all the limits of decency and decorum and respect for life. In such a society, people are constantly being desensitized, not only by alcohol, but also by the non-stop bombardment of their intelligence and their sensibilities by crude sensations. The media have now brought their skills to a pitch of perfection for creating and and intensifying those sensations with their endless parading of anything and everything that is an affront to normal human intelligence and sense of responsibility. from the shallow gossip and the trite scandals of the columnists, through arrant falsehood and shameless vulgarity, splashed across the headlines to the unbelievable onslaught of sex, violence, and horror. Uncontrolled and hardly noticed, It creeps through the familiar and trusted medium of the television into the very homes of the people. Perhaps the worst thing to see is the way the women in these societies have allowed themselves to be portrayed. The sense of self-respect, modesty and meekness that everywhere else in the world normally goes along with being a mother in our societies is here regarded as of no use or value. Of course, women may wear crosses round their necks and go to church regularly, but they still have to be very arrogant and insultingly immodest or aggressive, otherwise they are considered to be weak. The traditional kind of woman may be judged as weak through the distortions of rationality, but she'll be seen as wise when it comes to entering into the kingdom of God. Now, having seen all these things in the West— I can understand why Muhammad Saab asked women to cover their heads and their bodies. Because he was a prophet, he must have seen the future of women in the West, where there are absolutely no rules of decency or decorum to stop women from doing anything and everything to get themselves looked at. In these societies, the designers of scanty fashions and the hairdressers, it seems, are the most prosperous, "'It is they who have killed the beauty of romance "'as people fall in love on account of some hairstyle "'or some revealing fashion, "'then fall out of love the next day "'because their beloved has changed her hairstyle "'or bought a new set of clothes. "'Now, of course, the shabby style and the unkempt look, "'sophisticatedly called the casual or in-look, is in fashion, "'and the poor hairdressers and clothes designers "'are suffering for a while,' until they develop new styles of creating bald heads or dresses made of ribbons that can expose most of the body. Women in the West, especially if they are intelligent, have to be aggressive as far as rationality is concerned, and particularly so if they are career women or politicians. In politics they have to be dreaded like vampires. In social life they have to be not only formidable but glamorous as well, which means competing with models who only stare and never smile, or most cinema stars who have to work out their careers, usually no better than prostitutes. In order to be considered attractive, attracting what and who, they must expose their figure and show off their legs, and so invite rape because their faces are so expressionless. And after all, their logic seems to be, in a money-making society, if they are no good for rape—attracting all and sundry can be a dangerous game—how will they get their publicity as attractive women, or how can they exploit their assets and get their payoff? When he insisted that women should dress modestly and decently, Mohammed Saab must certainly have had foreknowledge of these kind of women, who have no respect for their chastity or for their dignity and who would tend to be like animals." They do not realise that animals mostly stand on their four and not just two legs to show themselves off. Another curse of Western societies is the terror of growing old. Why do men and women try so desperately to look young? Their rationality tells them, or perhaps it is the advertising man, that if you are old no one looks at you and no one bothers about you. So, in exchange for a dirty look from a stranger, it seems that they are willing to give up their beauty of chastity. The prevalence of such superficial ideas does not allow the society to mature. The members of such a society who do not respect their private parts or their age behave in such a manner that to a sane visitor from a foreign culture they look like idiots who are identified with artificiality and stupidity as far as their personal and social lives are concerned. Decency, modesty, dignity, and wisdom are all natural products of a traditional human society, which is based on the eternal values, or dharma. But in the West, such qualities are under attack and even despised because people no longer respect what is simple, natural, and normal. It is a symptom of the decline of the natural and innate, and the corresponding triumph of artificiality, that a substance like plastic has crept into all kinds of materials, and into every aspect of Western society. Now, we know plastic is not something which helps to sustain a healthy life or existence. Its constant use causes all kinds of skin troubles, and even respiratory problems. Even the intelligence, which was once the proud possession of our Anglo-Saxon brains – they tortured Italians in America, saying they were primitive – is now so perverted that they do not understand why they are suffering from all kinds of incurable nervous disorders and mental diseases. They are spreading these diseases in Asia by visiting the poor countries and by paying a lot of money for all kinds of physical indulgences. Because child abuse is a crime in their own countries, they go to Thailand and other eastern countries to indulge in these absolutely horrendous crimes. If the work they did had been under the guidance of wisdom, which gives humility and respect for other human beings, there would have been a balance in their lives, and they would not have succumbed so easily to physical and mental disorders. The intimate connection between the moral quality of people's lives and their physical and mental well-being will be discussed more elaborately in a later chapter when I shall be looking at the effects of widespread materialism, which first mechanization, then automation, and finally computerization have caused in Western societies, and the problems which have arisen when industrial development has gone to extremes. As we shall see, the root problem is that mental projection has no inbuilt wisdom to limit itself, and there is no balance in its products. It goes on supporting itself until polarity manifests itself and makes it crumble. This is what is now happening in the societies of the so called developed world. Rationality seems to be a curse of modern times, because all the decadence of society is a result of limitless rationality that creates it and later justifies it.